You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's reading is 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 14. And by this we know that we have come to know him, and for if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but, not, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his commandments, keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, is perfect. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the father. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your your word. We pray that you would now be our vision, that you would both help us to see the risen Christ and that he, O Lord Jesus, you might be that which we are beholding. Help us to behold you rightly and see your glory and that your glory might transform us to the uttermost. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. It's good to hear your voices sing loudly that prayer that we just sang. What a, what'd you say, Matt? That was a bold prayer. Bold, is that the adjective you used? That was a bold prayer we all just sang, and it was good to hear you all praying it. Uh, Well, last week we talked about the Christian's strong and confident assurance before God because of our great advocate, the Lord Jesus. I told you that John's major reason for writing this letter is to encourage his readers into a deep and sure fellowship with God. Indeed, a few weeks, in a few weeks, we'll read chapter 5, verse 13. John tells us a purpose statement. Sometimes we don't get something this explicit in a book of the Bible, why the the book of the Bible exists. But John tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the umbrella category, that you might know that you have eternal life. Well, last week I quoted the pastor J.D. Greer who says that if you base your assurance on what you do or how well you do it, you'll never find assurance. Remember that? Why did we think about that that reality is true? That Unless we, finish in the, or unless we rest in the finished work of Jesus, we will constantly, if we are looking inward, still find things that are wrong, still find things that we don't like, still find sin. Well, this book, 1 John, uh, John is 
very perceptive. He's a good pastor. He is very perceptive of our swinging, pendulum-like tendencies. Two weeks ago, we talked about our tendency to minimize the divine nature of Jesus while perhaps even simultaneously minimizing his humanity or minimizing God's holiness or minimizing our sin. Well, today, for, and for much of the rest of the book, he's going to really be pushing on our tendency toward, on the one hand, legalism, that we tend toward trying to constantly earn our favor before God, while also our tendency toward swinging toward license, legalism or license. That, if, that is, if I have been forgiven of all my sins, who really cares uh, what the rest of my life is about? And then mixed in all of that, in legalism and license, John is very perceptive to see deeply into our hearts that then we can swing from assurance to doubt, from assurance to doubt. All of these pendulums are all intermixed and connected. So John is really getting down to our, the deep motives and fears of our hearts. But we don't start with our heart. We don't start with constant morbid introspection of being continually depressed by all of the idols that we find ourselves so worshiping in our life. Our assurance begins and ends with the finished work of Jesus, with him. And John is going to add more and more layers to all of what he's already said, what we've already thought about the last two weeks. And so we're going to think about this letter as we've, or this sermon, as we've thought about this umbrella category of knowing God. And we're going to think about knowing God under three categories, three subsections to place and hang our thoughts on, on this section of chapter two. The test of knowing God, the realm of knowing God, and the assurance of knowing God. The test, the realm, and the assurance of knowing God. Let's think about this test. What is, what is the test of knowing God? How is it that we know God? Well, can we remember the three things that we thought about from two weeks ago in chapter one? that we thought about uh, that helped us to preserve, to keep, to deepen our fellowship with God. John gave us three things that help preserve our fellowship with God. That is, walk in the light, meaning walk openly, be honestly open about our sin, about God's holiness, open to God and with others. The second thing, part of walking in the light is to confess our sin to God and to others. And then the third thing he gave us in chapter one that will help us to deepen or preserve our fellowship with God is by trusting in the blood of Jesus. If these three things are true for you, for you as a Christian, then you can confidently approach the throne of grace because of your trust in Jesus's five bleeding wounds, which are crying out, forgive him, forgive her, it is finished. But now, having thought about all those things in chapter one and the first two verses of last week in chapter two. John now says in chapter two, verse three, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Is that verse in direct contradiction to everything that we have just now thought about? The, re- the way that you can know if you love God is if you obey him. Well, while I entirely agree with J.D. Greer from last week, in the context of what he was writing and in the context of 1 John, I might add one word 
to what J.D. Greer said last week, and I already read this sentence again earlier in this sermon, but I, I read J.D. Greer saying, if you base your assurance on what you do or how well you'll do it, how well you do it, you'll never find assurance. I might add one word to that. If you base your assurance only on what you do or how well you do it, you'll never find assurance. Because John begins talking a lot about our lives, about knowing God, about the love of God by our love of him and our love of others. In verses three through six, he compares people who say they love God, or say they know God, but then clearly their lives show that they do not. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If we are his children, John is saying, we will want to be like him. Verse 6, we will walk like him. When, When one of my kids was four or five years old, I think all, I have four boys, and I think For all of them, for many years of their life, they have all said that they wanted to be trash men. I don't know what it is about little boys, but every single one of them, at some point in their life, wants to be a trash man. There's something about driving that giant truck and picking up giant dumpsters or something that is, I don't know why that is, that it is really appealing and alluring to a little boy. But uh, when one of my kids was four or five years old, we were sitting around the dinner table, and uh, one of my sons said, hey, I don't think I want to be a trash man anymore. And Marcy and I said, oh, really? What, what do you think you want to be now? And he said, I want to be a pastor. Uh, he said, I want to be a pastor like you. That's sweet. That's really sweet. Uh, at this moment in time, I don't think any of them are necessarily thinking towards pastoral ministry, but there was a time that they were observing me as who I was as their dad and wanted to be like me in that role. Sons who are confident in the love of their father are utterly dependent upon them. They want to be like their dads. As they grow, they they begin to get more and more independent in their thinking. They want to do their own thing. But there is a reason why John calls us to be children of God. In fact, not calls us to become, but reminds us of who we are as children of God. If my young son, then when he said that then, was not convinced that I loved him, was not convinced of my presence and nearness with him, that I was trustworthy and good. Would he want to be a pastor? No, I don't think he would want anything to do with my vocation. When we start with the holiness of God and the love of God shown through the finished work of Christ, then we will want to be like him. We take on his characteristics. We will, verse 6, walk in the same way in which he walked, which is actually what we were created for. Back in the earliest chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve were walking with God in the coolness of morning. Enoch was commended for walking with God. This is who we were made to walk with, to live our lives. I was made to walk with him, we often sing together. I was made to walk with him to know him that intimately and deeply. Guys, this is the Christian life. This is what it means to be a Christian, to walk with Jesus. 
to know him so intimately and deeply, to know him, to trust him, to love him, to walk with him. When we intimately know Jesus, we will know the love of God and believe it. We will know our continual childlike neediness. Kids know that they need to be provided for. Kids idolize and exaggerate their own dads. Like, my dad could beat up your dad. And I'm like, no, actually I couldn't. Uh, But they have an over-exaggerated sense of the bigness of parents. They are filled with wonder at their dad and the world. When we live like this, in a confident assurance of God's love, of the Father's love, of an understanding of our neediness, then we will actually be free to obey him. Not out of fear, not out of a sense of trying to earn his acceptance, earn his fatherhood, earn our sonship or our daughterhood, but because we are. But only after we know him. Chapter 4, verse 16, John will later say, so we have come to know him and to believe the love that God has for us. Not that we have come to know about him, come to know about the love of God that he has for us. Not that we might like memorize a catechism or some doctrinal facts about him. Not just to come to church and learn about him, but to know him intimately. It's possible to know a great deal, a great deal about God and to not know God. I like history a lot. I read a lot of biographies. I know quite a bit about George Washington and Joseph Stalin and Che Guevara and Abraham Lincoln. Apparently, I've got a thing for like communist revolutionaries and American presidents, but I don't know them. I know a lot about them, but I do not know them. I've never met George Washington, but I know a lot about him. You can know all sorts of things about the Lord Jesus Christ. You can know all sorts of deeply theological things about God and be missing the entire point. Not knowing him, not walking with him. If we know just about God, then we will be not fully convinced that his commands for us aren't good. But knowing God produces love for his commands. If we only know about him but not know him, his commands will be burdensome for us. His commands will be him or us thinking that he is some stingy father holding out some good for us, not wanting us to experience some joy that we might have otherwise. We'll hate his commands. We'll disobey his commands because we don't know him, because we do not trust him as good. In short, because we do not know him as father. And this is who John is writing about here in chapter 2, verse 4. Those who don't know him. Remember, John wants to assure those who keep on confessing their sins, who keep on trusting in Jesus. But he just as much wants to shake up those who might have some sense of a false assurance. Those who might know a lot about God, but don't know God. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You don't know him. You know about him. But we do not begin with looking at our works 
as the starting point, as the basis, as the foundation for our assurance. We begin by just trusting our Father, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus, and then inevitably looking more and more like him, inevitably emulating him. But there is some sense in which reflection is good. If our lives are full of unrepentant, full of never-changing sin, it is likely our confession of knowing God might just be phony, might just be that of knowing about him. And so wait, wait, you might be thinking, I do claim to know God, but I don't keep his commandments all the time. I still sin. So now I am flooded with doubt all over again. We can throw out the two sermons from the last two weeks, throw them out the window, because now I'm just racked with doubt and anxiety all over again because I'm not obeying God. I'm not keeping his commandments. I've sinned this week. I've sinned this morning. I've sinned five minutes ago. Well, I've got good news. If you are troubled by your sin, if you have confessed your sin, John is not writing to you. If you are walking in the light, if you are confessing your sin to God and to one another, if you are trusting in the work of Jesus on your behalf, shake off your guilty fears, my soul arise. Approach confidently God as your good and welcoming and loving Father. Remember, the ones who John says don't know God, the ones that he is calling a liar, chapter 1, verse 6, they say that they have fellowship with God while walking in the darkness. Chapter 1, verse 8, they say that they have no sin. Chapter 1, verse 10, they say that they have not sinned. But if we are open and honest with God and with one another about our sin and we are coming to Jesus together, then this is not for us. Assurance is for us. But if you are not troubled by your sin, if you keep moving about through your life week by week, year by year, if you continue in your sin without so much thinking twice about it, without confession and repentance, this text actually should make you squirm. Squirm a little bit. John is saying that it is possible, it is perhaps probable, that you know a lot about God, but you might not know him. But if you are walking in the light, seeing your sin clearly, confessing your sin to him and to others, trusting in the blood of Jesus on your behalf, then take heart. The love of God is for you. It is, verse 5, being perfected in you. Now this word perfected isn't meaning like uh, a righteousness, a perfection. It is being uh, completed, made whole. It is finding its end. The, the, the goal in which, the purpose for which the love of God has come to you, it is finding its, the, the goal is doing its work. It is perfecting us, making us whole to walk with him. So there is a trajectory in the Christian life away from sin and to holiness. A trajectory though, not a straight line. I've used many, many times throughout the last five years or so from this pulpit, uh, Kevin DeYoung's illustration of a man walking up a flight of stairs. But a man walking up a flight of stairs with a yo-yo. Our sin very much is like a yo-yo. There are ups and there are downs. But the Christian life is one of yo-yo up and down, but while walking up the flight of stairs. 
a year from now, my highest highs, Lord willing, will be higher than my highest highs today, and my lowest lows a year from now, certainly five or ten years from now, Lord willing and by his grace, will be higher than my lowest lows are today. This is the Christian life. Not perfect, not a straight line of sanctification. There is no red pill of sanctification, no zapping of the Holy Spirit that takes away all of your sin and makes you holy. But it is a life of progress, of growth. We have many young parents, many parents of young children in this room, infants and toddlers who are now learning to walk. If we saw one of these young parents, if we walked out of here and we were just chit-chatting and we saw a young dad get down and squat down and say, come here, come here, and he's telling his 11-month-old to try to walk to him, and the 11-month-old stumbles and falls on his face, and the dad got angry at the child, scolded him, told him to try harder and do better, we would rightfully see this father as horribly gone wrong. He has unbelievably wrong expectations for progress. And yet, how often do we think of God as that kind of evil father? I am patient with a one-year-old because I know who he is becoming, who he will be as a five-year-old. I am even patient with the development and of the character of the honor and the integrity of my seven and my nine and my 11 and my 13-year-old sons when they are being ridiculous, when they're acting like kids because I know of the, the virtuous young men that they are becoming and who they will be. Disciplining them in love along the way, yes, but in love, in patience, in slow and steady progress as they are learning to walk, as they are learning to be young men. And yet we get frustrated. We get angry. We get impatient and discontent and fearful by our sanctification. We assume that God must be so frustratingly ready to give up on us at any moment when many of us in this room are just, just now learning how to walk, when many of us are just now learning how to make our own lunch, we assume that we must not be Christians at all because ugh, it's happened again. I'm still not where I want to be as a 40-year-old mature man or woman because I'm still acting like a child. We are still children, many of us. We are just now beginning to grow. And actually, being a child isn't the worst place to be. Remember, trusting him, depending on him, having him help us to grow, not just doing it on our own. Can I just read you the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two again? For those of you who are discontent, impatient, angry at your lack of holiness, Chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us, my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. The test of knowing God is that you are walking in the light, is that you are learning how to walk, that you are stumbling, but stumbling less, But if you know God, if you love him, something has happened. Something has happened. And so, now that we thought about the test of knowing God, that of walking in the light, now let's think about just the realm of knowing God. The place, the reality of living and knowing God. The specific commandment that he is going to give us here is in verse 7. He says, no new commandment. I'm not giving you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. But at the same time, this is really confusing. At the same time, the commandment that I'm going to give you, verse 8, is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. So what's going on here? Well, the the commandment, I think, is this. We can just skip to the end here. The commandment is this, is that you are to love. That you are to love your brother. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. But this whole old and new thing is really strange. He's saying that he's giving something not new, it's old, but in the, at the same time, it is new. But John is probably just saying, this is very old. This is very old in that the law has always been about loving God. The law has always been about knowing and loving God. But then, referring back to his gospel account in John 13, 34, where he has written down that Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. So again, John is saying this is old and new. He's saying this is what we've said from the very beginning. When we first shared the gospel with you, Jesus said that you are to love one another. Meaning, when we came sharing the gospel with you and when we as Christians share the gospel with someone else, we don't just say here are some theological truths that you must believe. And then, if you get around to it, oh yeah, if you can, try your hardest to love other people. No. Life change and loving others is foundational, is fundamental to what it means to know God, to be a Christian. You've heard it from the very beginning, John says. But there is a sense in which this commandment is new. Jesus is saying, a new commandment I give to you. Even though the command to love others is throughout the Old Testament. Now Jesus is saying, and what John is saying here, is that it's actually possible to do it. When you receive the life of Christ through the Holy Spirit, you actually receive the life of Christ. You're united to him. Something supernatural is happening. This isn't just like we have some psychological beliefs or some propositional truth beliefs change about reality. No, something happens spiritually and supernaturally. So if this is true, that we receive the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, creating new life and sealing new life, then you are now able to supernaturally love others as he does. Not merely loving others when it is transactionally beneficial. Even the unbelievers do that. 
Every human being loves others when it makes sense. When I get something in return, everyone loves that way. Jesus tells us to love our enemies when it is transactionally unbeneficial. We do not, we don't, we don't any longer just use people to fill us up because we are empty, but no, having been filled, now we are able to pour out to others, just as Jesus has done with us. If you are not loving others, it might be a specific indicator that you have not received the life of Christ. If you are still harboring resentment, anger, Jesus says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Implication being that if you do not have love for one another, you are not his disciple. But John says back here in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, that the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So remember we said something happens when someone becomes a Christian. Something happens. Again, you don't just stay the same person with just a few different thoughts about Christianity or about the Bible. Everything is different. This is the difference between light and darkness, between blindness and sight. This is what Paul means in Colossians 1, where he says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, or Peter in 1 Peter 2, that once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. He has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, or what we professed in our profession of faith earlier from Ephesians 2, that we were dead, but God has brought life John is saying that unbelievers, those who have not come to faith in Christ, live in a domain, a realm, a kingdom, a world of darkness, a world with no light so that they cannot see. But in addition to living in a domain or a realm of darkness, when we do not have Christ, the supernatural work of the Spirit, not only do we live in darkness, but we are also blind. So even if you moved that person to a lighted place, they still would not be able to see. This was all of us. But when people receive the life of Christ, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that two things happen. Their eyes are opened, and they are transferred into a new realm. Open eyes, sight, and a new realm. Light, sight, and light. Both are emphasized here in 1 John. Both are true. Lloyd-Jones says, if I am changed and I am in a new realm, then I am a different person and I am a citizen of a different kingdom. I am a new person and I am a citizen of a new kingdom. Both must be true. I am simply not the man that I once was in a new kingdom. Does this make sense? When we become a Christian, we are not just the man or the woman that we once were, now just living in a new kingdom. You aren't just positionally changed from one kingdom to another. There is change. There's the Spirit cleaning and renovating our hearts. It's like if you took a blind man out of a dark cave and then put him in a well-lit room. So what? He's still stumbling around because he cannot see wherever he is. 
But, Christian, if you can see the king, be thou my vision. If you can see him for who he really is, and you are living under his kingdom, in his kingdom and under his good rule, then we become like the king. Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. But then elsewhere, he said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. So which is it, Jesus? He's so confused. I am the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. When we walk with him, walk as he walked, united to him, becoming like him in his life and death, the death of the old self and the continual renewal of the new self in him, we see the world rightly, as we'll think about next week seeing the world rightly, but also the world ought to more rightly see the king. We see him rightly, we see the world rightly, but the world ought to see the king rightly because he's actually changing his people. If the world is seeing a church, as is often the case with American Christians today, as just baptized versions of the same old worldly powers, then Jesus gets no glory for this. He is not compelling. He is not glorious. He's just the same old. He's just a a different rival version of all all the old powers of the world. But Jesus, if he is transforming us into people of love, of deference, of humility, of self sacrifice, then that is a God worth serving and loving. That is a king worth giving our lives to. But again, if you are confessing sin and trusting in the blood of Christ, you can be sure that you have received this life. Even if you are not perfectly like him yet, even if you are a yo-yo, but a yo-yo going up the stairs, if you are learning to walk in your love of him and your love of others, then rest. Rest in his love for you. Again, though, if you are not, if you find yourself just constantly harboring resentment, anger, bitterness, fear, jealousy. Is God in you? Has he transformed you? Is, are you walking with Christ? Might you squirm a little bit? Not love perfectly. There will be plenty of times in which for the rest of your life you will respond in selfishness, respond in anger. But if you live in a state of continual gossip or slander or envy or hatred or anger or bitterness or pride, do you know him? Are you still blind? Do you see him? Do you live in his kingdom? If you do not love others, John is pretty clear, you do not have the life of Christ. You do not have fellowship with God. But we love each other because of the love that God has given to us. We do not quibble or let petty sin fester because you especially members of the same church, a brother to brother, a brother to sister, a sister to sister. We do not let sin fester because we both realize the magnitude of the sin which has been forgiven of us. We both realize that small issues and sin are just microscopic compared to the eternity that we will one day live with one another. Those Christians on the internet or in different churches that just drive us crazy, how much of our patience with them would, or for them, how much would 
we'd be able to be more long-suffering and empathetic if we realized, hey, we're going to all be living in the kingdom of Christ together for eternity. If we lift our gaze a bit, that might help our days now. Every week when we come to this table, we signify that we are all of one body partaking and sharing in the divine body. We cannot not love one another. The love of God compels us to love one another. And the love of God compels us to love unbelievers because we compassionately see people who are not of the king as people of blindness, the same blindness that we once experienced. Stumbling in darkness, why would we expect blind people to see and care about a God that they cannot see? This is a God that we want to share, want to love with our words and with our mouths, or words and with our lives. But again here, John is just so pastoral. He is so pastoral. He knows his readers, like many of you, are reading, are hearing, and are thinking. I don't love people that well. I don't love people as I think I should. So maybe I'm not a Christian. Should I have assurance that I have been saved by him? Well, lastly here, the assurance of knowing God. Let me just read verses 12 through 14 again. He writes to the very young, to the very old, perhaps an age, but maybe more likely to the spiritually young, the spiritually immature, and the spiritually wise and immature. John says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now again, whether it be to people of young and old ages, or different levels of maturity or immaturity, John just starts sending wave of assurance after wave of assurance after wave of assurance over all of them. Just swim around in the assurance of God's love for you and what he has done for you, in you, and through you. He's saying all this because I think he's thinking, I don't want you to become so introspective that you begin to doubt your fellowship with God. That you begin to, well, it's good to perhaps once a year or so to think back towards last year. Am I growing more in this area than where I was last year? That's perhaps good, but don't become so introspective that you are perhaps doing that kind of fruit test once a day, hour by hour. Because this will inevitably cause you to lack your assurance If you are walking in the light, though, meaning however imperfectly you are obeying God's commands, you are still walking in the light. I want you to know, verse 12, that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I want you to know, verse 13, that you know Christ. I want you to know, verse 13, Satan, the evil one, he is overcome. He is overcome. He is like a wounded and dying animal. Dangerous, yes, but mortally wounded. Overcome by a victorious king. I want you to know, verse 13, because you know Christ and your sins are forgiven, that you know the Father and you have fellowship with him. 
I want you to know, verse 14, that you are strong because the word of God and the spirit of God has strengthened you. So be encouraged. Be assured. It is by grace that you have been saved and it is by grace that you will continue to grow. It is by grace that you have come to Christ and it is by grace that you will become become more and more like him. Keep believing. Believe in the advocate. If you aren't believing, repent. Repent. Come to him. Perhaps for the first time, repent. Recognize your sin. Agree with God about sin. Agree with God about your need for forgiveness and repent. But your sins will be forgiven. God does not love the cleaned up version of you. God loves the present version of you. Just like I don't withhold my love for my children for many years until they're like 40 and can provide for themselves. I love them right now when they still spill the milk and they can't do their own laundry. This is us. We are growing as children, growing, but he loves not some future independent version of him, of us that doesn't need him any longer, but the present childlike version of us that depends on him by grace each and every day. There's an old illustration of maybe a a ninth grade girl or a guy, their very first week of honors English in high school. And this young man, this young woman, the first week just realizes this class is going to be too much for me. The papers will be too demanding. The Shakespeare is too incomprehensible. It's not going to happen. So the, the student, this young lady, she goes to her honors English teacher and she says, I'd like to, I, I'm, I'm honest about myself here, I'd like for you to move me to the regular English class. I think I'll flourish better there. And then the teacher says, okay, I'll let you do that. However, what if right now, on week one, you've got a whole school year ahead of you, but on week one, I gave you an A plus for the year. Every report card that you'll have for the rest of the year that you'll take home to your parents will say A plus. On your college application, it will say A plus. Will you stay in my class? The young lady says, of course, this sounds awesome. What a deal. And perhaps for the next month or so, she completely mails it in. She doesn't do the reading. She maybe writes a little bit of her paper, but she doesn't really care. Who does care? It doesn't matter. It's not going to affect her grade for the better or for the worse. Who cares? But then, after a month or so, maybe around middle of the semester, certainly by Thanksgiving, by Christmas, she finds out she's writing a little better. She's actually enjoying the reading now that she realizes this isn't going to affect her final grade. And then wouldn't you know, by the end of that semester, by the end of her ninth grade year, she is producing A-plus work. She's putting out quality papers. She enjoys the reading. This is the Christian life. You are a failure. When we walk in the light, we realize we can't do the work. It's too difficult. It's too incomprehensible. I cannot do it. Perhaps you would just be better off, O oh teacher, O oh Lord God of the universe, without me in your class. There is one who has done the A-plus work, and his name is the Lord Jesus, the righteous one, your advocate. And by 
leaning on, by trusting in, by walking in his light, by his work on our behalf, perhaps initially we might say, well, then who really cares? My life doesn't matter. I don't really care about following him. But if we live into our identity as an A-plus student, if I am reminded I am an A-plus student, then I can just begin to begin more and more by the end of the year, by the end of my life, to produce A-plus work. This is the Christian life. Sanctification is less about stop being the sinner that you were. Stop it. Sanctification is more about start being the saint that you are. Remember who you are. Yes, we often need to, for the sake of Christ, to deny our flesh, to just obey out of faith, but more often and more transformatively, we just need to be reminded of who we are sons and daughters of God, loved by God. I read a post this week from a gal who has struggled with faith and assurance her whole life, and she concluded with this. How's this for a paragraph? She said, at the end of this, she says, there's nothing original that I can offer here. There are uncompromising promises about God's character and his love of each of us and those who we love. I held on to these promises white-knuckled. Then she says, and then... Gradually, I realized that I didn't need to hold on that tightly because I was being held. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that we were created. You have made us to walk with you. And yet we also recognize that so often in our life, day by day, we try, we convince ourselves, we persuade ourselves that life is better off without you. Life is better off walking on our own, walking in the direction that we think best. Father, we are sorry. We repent of this. We want to walk in the light. We want to want what you want for our lives. Help us. Oh, Spirit, we pray that you would um, strengthen our consciences, that we might be more and more quickly ready to see our sin, recognize our sin, turn from our sin, and just come back to the finished work of Jesus on the cross for us. Help us to remember who we are, sons and daughters of God. Help us as we grow. Help us to become patient in our progress of godliness, and yet also earnest in our progress of godliness. Help us to work out our salvation, understanding who you have called us to be, who, have you, who you have shown yourself to be, who you have shown yourself to be most clearly in the cross of Christ. And so help us, we pray. Help us to love you. Help us to love one another, that the world might know you, that we might know you. We pray that the love of God might be more and more, even this week, perfected in us, that it might find its intended goal, might just a little bit more and more Help us along the way, up the stairs with ups and downs, but up the stairs, producing more and more A-plus work because of what you have done for us, who you have called us to be as we live more and more into our, our identity as your sons and daughters. We pray all of this for your glory, for our deepening joy and contentment in you, for our holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.